Well, it was, uh, it was bound to happen. I guess if you preach long enough, these kinds of things are going to uh, go down. Uh, we were out of apple juice and Skittles this morning at the house. Uh, because you have to bribe the kiddos to go to the potty in the potty. And uh, so um, in my mind, uh, Sam's was the only thing that was open uh, early on a Sunday morning. So I threw on some ball shorts and some old man shoes and uh, headed to Sam's to get uh, apple juice and Skittles, thinking I would have plenty of time to make it back to the house to get dressed and ready for church this morning. But lo and behold, Road traffic got me. Sam's was super slow, and I couldn't get the apple juice and Skittles to get back to the house on time. So I passed through the Cherrydale intersection and looked at my watch, and church was beginning. Pulled into the parking lot, and there I met a dude in the lobby who just so happened to have rented a house like three houses down here on State Park Road. So I was like, dude, can you go get me some pants? We are at the final song, and I'm about to preach in ball shorts and man shoes. And he ran down the street to get pants for me for Sunday, but he didn't make it back in time. And I had to preach this sermon in gym shorts and old man shoes. And then I woke up. (laughs) I tell you that to tell you this. Um, It really does not matter how the next 30 minutes goes either for you or for me, because I'm preaching with pants on this morning, and that means it's going to be a win, regardless of what happens. All right, turn with me to Joshua 1. Turn with me to Joshua 1. Let's get going. Dress appropriately for church. I mean, you ever done that? Had a dream, and you just wake up so glad that it's not true? That was my morning this morning. So glad that I'm not preaching in ball shorts and man shoes this morning. All right, uh, Joshua 1. Get a running start into uh, the first Samuel passage. Uh, we are picking up the story here in Joshua, kind of generation uh, before they uh, are getting ready to take the promised land. If you remember your Old Testament history, they've had a bit of a scenic journey getting to the land. A generation has died in the wilderness. Moses has been told he's not going to be able to let the people in. Joshua is now at the helm, and he's leading the people, and they're heading into a land that's just littered with numerous foes that are super overwhelming. One case in point would be the Philistines, people who worship other gods. They're large, they're intimidating, and it seems like the Israelites don't stand a chance, and in fact, they, they don't. God tells the people repeatedly that they're going to have to trust him, that they're going to take the land not by their might or by their power, but by his spirit, by his activity. God calls Joshua with a charge here, beginning in verse 6, that really echoes through the stories of the Old Testament all the way down to 1 Samuel. Let's begin reading uh, Joshua 1, verse 6. Be strong and courageous, for you will distribute the land I swore to their ancestors to give them as an inheritance. Above all, be strong and very courageous to observe carefully the whole instruction that my servant Moses commanded you. Don't turn to the right or to the left. So you will have success wherever you go. This book of instruction must not depart from your mouth. You'll meditate on it day and night so that you may carefully observe everything that's written in it. For then you will prosper and succeed in whatever you do. Haven't I commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So one of the passages... um, and literally in the Old Testament, these are a little bit uh, harder to find, where you get this kind of blanket summary statement. 
Many of you, if you grew up in and around church, this would be an Old Testament passage that you likely memorized or was called to mind on a flannel graph board. It's easy to see the central idea of this passage, isn't it? In verse 6 through verse 9, we get the threefold repeated, be strong and courageous, each time linked. One time it's amplified, be strong and very courageous. The point is clear. And notice in your Bible, look in verse 9 with me. The, the call, the exhortation to strength and courage is linked, it's contrasted with not being afraid or discouraged. They're opposites. So to be strong and courageous is to, to not be afraid or discouraged. Now think forward, hold that notion with me. Think forward to Paul's writing in the book of Colossians. This would be a familiar one uh, to many of us where he exhorts Christians here uh, to, to take off the old self that's uh, been decimated by sin's power and put on the new self that's being restored in the image of Christ. So applied here, fear and discouragement are what should be taken off And what should be put on is strength and courage. This connection is the key in my mind to making sense of our passage this morning, which is about courage. We've been reflecting on the the negative aspects of fear lately. The fears that drove Israel to hide from the Philistines, the fears that caused Saul to rush into offering a sacrifice before the appropriate time, the fears that ultimately led God to strip his kingship, Saul's kingship, from him. And we recognize the parallel in our own lives. We also have fears that cause us to abandon God, fears that cause us to trust in ourselves, fears that cause us to abandon the Lord, to hide, to doubt his promise and provision. We too can be gripped, as the text said last week, by fears that lead us to a really dark place. So what do you do with fear? Like if you, if you want to put off fear, is the solution found in focusing on getting rid of fear? I think 1 Samuel 14 answers the question differently for us. The answer is to replace ungodly fear with unusual courage. That's our big idea this morning. We want to be the kinds of people who are replacing ungodly fear with unusual courage. And we're going to see this unusual courage displayed in our passage this morning. If you'll turn to 1 Samuel 14, I'm going to back up from what was read for us a moment ago and kind of tell the story of how we got to that place. 1 Samuel chapter 14, we'll begin reading in verse 1. Again, big idea, we're replacing ungodly fear with unusual courage. That same day, Saul's son, Jonathan said to the attendant who carried his weapons, Come on, let's cross over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. However, he did not tell his father. Saul was staying under the pomegranate tree. All right, so we're working through big books of the Bible. And when you're working through big books of the Bible over an extended period of time, you make a few editorial decisions as you're mapping the preaching calendar, which is what I I did. Um, Sometimes we're going to pick a chapter or two at a time, and then sometimes we're going to slow down. Here, I've intentionally broken the story in half. So look in your Bible. You're going to see Jonathan's victory in 14.1. That's going to be your editorial header. And then you're likely going to see an editorial header over verse 24, Saul's rash oath. So that tells us in our story that there's bad news coming in this. 
Uh, the, The outcome of this is not going to be as positive as perhaps we're going to see this morning. I've broken it for two reasons. One, this story is one of the few positive examples in the book of 1 Samuel. So it's kind of nice to get a a, a positive exhortation from the text. And two, the topic of courage is one that I think um, we as a church and American Christians could, could, could use some extended consideration of. I don't think we're a people who do courage really well. And so I want to slow down and ask you to consider what does unusual courage look like for us today? All right, where's Saul in this scene and where's Jonathan? First, Saul in verse 2. Jonathan hasn't told Saul what he's getting ready to do. Though he's his father, we could assume motives here. Maybe Saul doesn't want him to go. Maybe he just assumes Saul's not going to do this anyway. But we get a positional statement in verse 2 of what Saul's doing. He's hanging out under a pomegranate tree. Now, I don't know anything about pomegranates. I certainly don't know anything about pomegranate trees. Though I think I've uh, I've tasted their juice at one point. That's as close as I've ever come to a pomegranate. But my magic phone does know about pomegranates. And so I looked up on my magic phone this week what a pomegranate. All right, so medium height tree. And uh, Wikipedia says with spiny-like branches that create perfect shape. Okay, so it's just a shade tree. He's hanging out under the shade tree, contemplating, considering what to do. And Jonathan, in contrast, is going to be the one that's going to act and move into battle against the Philistines. Now, before we consider Jonathan, you're going to notice a bit of trajectory here. Adam hanging out in the garden while Eve eats the fruit David lingering on the rooftop while the army is fighting his battles. Bad things happen when those who should be leading sit in the shade of idleness. Bad things happen. And he's mentioned here hanging out with the priest. And we get, if you look in your text, we get a bit bit of description in verse 3. The priest, and notice how we're tracing this line. The line goes all the way back to Eli and his boys. If you remember, this is the priestly line that's been discarded. So Saul's chilling in the shade with the priest who's been rejected by God while something else is happening on the front lines. In contrast, we find Jonathan fighting the battles. And we remember this theme was introduced last week. Look back in 1 Samuel 13, verses 3 and 4. This was a bit of an aside in a previous story. Jonathan attacked the Philistine garrison. Philistines heard about it, so Saul blew the ram's horn throughout the land. Let the Hebrews hear, and all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine garrison, and now Israel is repulsive to the Philistines. It wasn't Saul that attacked the Philistine garrison, it was Jonathan. Jonathan is the one who is acting. He is presented as Saul's son, but he's he's presented as the anti-Saul. He succeeds where Saul fails. He does what the king won't do. Remember, only Saul and Jonathan have weapons at this point. We saw that at the end of the passage last week. The Philistines have fortified locations in the land, far more people, and they have the Israelites in a subservient position. Things are not right, and everyone knows it. And we have two characters, one sulking in the shade and one engaging in the battle. Jonathan says in this text to his armor bearer at the introduction of the passage, verses 1 and 2, let's cross over. Remember, this is contrasted with those who are fearful in the previous story. What did they do? They crossed back over the Jordan. 
Here, Jonathan is the one that's on the, the, the offense. He's saying, let's go do something. This is a step forward. He sees something that's not right, and he does something about it. So let's start there. I'll try to give you a definition of courage this morning. Idea number one, courage is recognizing that something's not right. We could think about this, a host of cast of characters, Nehemiah would be an example of this. The walls are broken down, something's not right, and I've got to do something. Jonathan begins what he gets right in the story is he sees that something is not right. Now, I want you to remember, and I want you to hold intention here, we aren't merely talking about how to be courageous, but we're also talking about how to drive fear out of your life. Remember last week when we were talking about fear, I actually, I mean, this is like uh, low bar pastoring here, I actually made the same point last week. Fear is a natural response to something that's not right, if you remember. So we see something that's not right. People engage in things that are out of whack. There are Philistines in the land here, myriad of things that aren't right in our lives. And we have two responses. Ungodly fear that grips us, as it does with Saul and the Israelites, or courageous action. Those are the two responses to things that are not right. And since we can't not be in a space where things are not right, these are the two paradigms for how you're going to live your life. You're either going to be a person that engages in not rightness, gripped with ungodly fear, or you're going to be a person who engages in not rightness with courageous action. You can't not be one of those two people. Ungodly fear says this whole house of cards is going to come crashing down. Courageous action says this presents me an opportunity to build something better. Ungodly fear looks at circumstances. Courageous action looks at potential. Let's see what God can do. Ungodly fear forecasts future gloom. Courageous action forecasts future provision. Which is more true of you? And you might think when we talk about courage that I'm, I'm talking about like really big, huge acts. Often when the subject of courage is brought up in the church, there's no shortage of Braveheart movie quotes that accompany this sermon. It's not really what I have in mind here. Because most of us, most of the time, encounter brokenness at a far more modest level. We're called to courage when relationships get sideways. When a harsh word or a cold shoulder is given in marriage. When we cut corners to get ahead at work. When something's out of sorts with an area of ministry in the church. When there's a sin pattern that lingers just a bit too long. When one of our neighbors is seeking salvation in something other than Jesus Christ. These not rights and a multitude of others in your life are the spaces that call for courageous action. And friends, let's not be mistaken. It takes great courage to move into a broken relationship and make it right. It takes great courage to say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? It takes great courage to advocate for Jesus at a neighborhood cookout. It takes great courage to admit sloppy work ethic. These are not modest things. 
They are not rights in our life that call for a recognition. Something's not right. Which then leads to verse 6. Jonathan said to the attendant who carried his weapons, come on now, let's cross over the garrison, uh, these uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will help us. Nothing can keep the Lord from saving, whether by few or by many. His armor bearer responded, do what is in your heart. Go ahead. I am completely with you. Courage is recognizing that something's not right and controlling what you can control to make things better. Controlling, second, second big idea, controlling what you can control to make things better. These two verses, verses 6 and 7, are two of the greatest verses in this chapter particularly and perhaps in the whole book. Jonathan repeats his plan to the armor bearer. Hey, I'm going to go and I'm going to attack. I'm going I'm to take on the Philistines. And uh, this action, as we saw in chapter 13, isn't new. But what's new is his uh, verbal processing of the basis for his actions. He says three things in these verses. First, perhaps God will help us. Two, nothing can keep him from saving us. Three, whether by few or by many. In other words, Jonathan speaks words of faith to his circumstances. I'm struck by this week's parallel to the much more famous story that we'll get to in a couple of weeks of David and Goliath. You're going to see clear overtones to what plays out here. David, when confronted with a Philistine foe that says, the Lord helped me when I was tending sheep in the wilderness, he'll deliver me now. And Jonathan's stepping to the battle lines in a very similar way. And here we can't say things like, well, well, Jonathan's just a product of his environment. He's grown in a place that taught him to trust him. No, I mean, he's Saul's kid. This isn't what Saul's not. This isn't blind optimism. These are words of faith. Remember last week, we, we said we fight fear with faith. Notice the combination of what's said in verses 6 and 7. Jonathan is sure of one thing and unsure of something else. He's unsure of the outcome. Notice his, his line in verse 6. Perhaps God will save us. He's not confident in the outcome of this battle. But he is sure that God is powerful enough to do it. Perhaps he'll save us. But I'm confident of this. He can. And he's not limited by the size of all. Whether by few or by many. That's not going to constrain him. And this is the big idea. His lack of clarity as to whether God will deliver them in this circumstance does not stop him from acting. His lack of clarity about perhaps God will save us, but that doesn't paralyze him in inactivity. Ask in question form. How will we as people know if God will help us if we don't consistently put ourselves in positions that demand his help? How will your stated affirmation that God is powerful, he is sovereign, he is in control, he can do whatever he wants, how will that be manifest if we're not the people who are putting ourselves in positions that call on God to deliver? Faith births courageous action. So the armor bearer says, you do what's in your heart. 
He affirms Jonathan's actions here are, are an outworking of what's in Jonathan's heart. He knows things aren't right. They're Philistines in the land. He knows God is capable of saving. He knows that Saul is shirking back and not attacking. He, he can attack all the Philistines. He's not the king. He can't do what Saul should be doing. He can't fix all of the issues of the people of his day. But he can do something. And he knows that doing something, even if it's not doing everything, is better than doing nothing. Doing something, even if it's not doing everything, is better than doing nothing. So what's, what's your something? Like, what's your courageous action that is leaning into spaces of brokenness and making them better? Two ways to think about this, uh, present this consistently. There's the reactive type of courage. Something happens in your life that's unplanned, it's unexpected, and it calls for you to step up. This is actually uh, a far, more, uh, far easier form of courage. Most of us have the uh, inner resolve, the inner fortitude that when we're faced with an emergency, we can be courageous for a limited period of time. It's, it's laudable. That type of courage is important. But let's not let reactive courage blind us for the need for proactive courage. The kind that looks that, at things that are broken in the world and acts in faith to make them better. This is the kind that perhaps moves into the foster care world to see to it that kids have forever families. Or the kind that recognizes that there are entire groups of people around the world with no access to the gospel of Jesus Christ or written Bibles in their language and does something to address that. The kind that recognizes selfish gain that could come from their discretionary income at work, but leverages their resources in hidden ways to send and empower the work of the gospel around the world. Or the kind that intentionally prays for neighbors and seeks to share the gospel with those who are far from God but close to them. Proactive courage is what I think our church needs more of, what my life needs more of, and I want you to notice here, this courage from Jonathan actually gives courage to others. Notice what the armor bearer says in verse 7. Do what's in your heart. I'm with you. Your text has an exclamation mark there. In, in other words, I'm not merely doing this because I have to. I'm not merely doing that. I'll fight with you. I think this is a fascinating reality of courage. When we act with courage, we actually have the ability to inflame the courage of others. When we act with courage, we have the unique ability to inflame the courage of those around us. In contrast, applied negatively, and we see this far more often, when I, when you are gripped with fear, we tend to paralyze those that are around us. We tend to cause them to cave in on themselves. So you either inflame courage or you inflame fear. All right, verse 8, Jonathan replied, We'll cross over to the men and let them see us. If they say, wait until we reach you, then we'll stay where we are and not go up to them. 
But if they say, come on up, then we'll go up because the Lord has handed them over to us. This will be our sign. They let themselves be seen by the Philistine garrison. The Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of their holes where they've been hiding. The men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer, hey, come on, come on up. We'll teach you a lesson, they said. Follow me, Jonathan told his armor bearer, for the Lord has handed them over to Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer behind him. Jonathan cut them down. His armor bearer followed to finish them off. It was the first assault Jonathan and his armor bearer struck down about 20 men in a half acre field. Now, back in verse 4, if you look back, the author mentions a bit of topography that helps us uh, capture the scene. This is a classic battle movie scene. Philistines and Israelites are positioned on two high places with a ravine in the middle. The Philistine high place is, uh, is, is set off on opposite sides by two rock outcroppings. And uh, these rock outcroppings actually have a name. One of them means slippery and the other means thorny. It's not exactly a beware the bears sign, you know, but uh, uh, hikers be warned. This isn't going to go well for you if you try to. So they've got the, the prime place. Some commentators note that it was such a prime place that it seemed impassable, right? Nobody, nobody can take this. Jonathan draws up a simple approach, really not the best military strategy, as we've seen throughout this book. Let's let ourselves be seen by them. In reality, you could not let yourself, because by going down your outcropping, you're going to be exposed in the ravine. You're in the place uh, uh, that, that's, that's out in the open to be seen by all. Let's let ourselves be seen with them. And if they say, you guys hang tight, we're going to come down to you, that God has not given them over. If they say, come on up, then God, ha now you would think the opposite, right? If they say, you guys hang tight, we'll come down to you. You think, okay, they're getting their stuff together. This is the prime time to kind of skirt up and attack them. But if they say, come on up to us, we'll teach you a lesson. You're thinking Kevin McAllister in the, uh, the Home Alone, right? The wet bandits are about to be blasted here. You don't attack somebody that invites you to come up. But in counterintuitive wisdom, this is an indication for Jonathan that the Lord had handed them over. Now, I do want you to notice here, this is, his faith, his courage, it was not haphazard zeal. It wasn't recklessness. He was attending to the circumstances. He was working a plan. The text tells us that he shimmies up on his arms and around the outcropping, the, the rock outcroppings to get to the people. It wasn't haphazard zeal. He was acting in measured steps designed to sense the Lord's leading. And they say, the Hebrews are coming out of their holes. And, and friends, they're right, aren't they? What did we see last week? That when faced with this paralyzing fear, they just, they hide wherever they can find they go anywhere. So they're coming out of their holes like little animals. Jonathan climbs over the wall, armor bearer right, by, right behind him, and he destroys the Philistines. 20 men die in battle. The indication is uh, from ver verse 14, this first assault. So this is just the start. I mean, that, that is good work. Two dudes kill 20. That's big time. It indicates, at least uh, on the front, that the Philistines didn't take this attack seriously. They sat back and assumed, no big deal. 
Their taunt of come get us was merely a prideful declaration of a few. Whatever the case, the outcome was a confirmation of verses 6 and 7, isn't it? The Lord won the victory, whether by few or by many. This time it was a few. Two men with the odds stacked against them in a way that was meant to be extended to the nation as a whole. If God can defeat the the Philistines with two dudes from a position of weakness, what could he do with the entire nation? Surely you would extrapolate this point to all the battles that they're facing. If God can win this battle with few, then he can do it with Saul's 600 men. God can act to save as easily with a few as he can with many. Which leads us to a third observation about courage. Courage is recognizing that something's right. Controlling what you can control to make something better. Thirdly, even if the odds are stacked against you. Even if the odds are stacked against you. And friends, this is probably, at least in my life, I mean, this is probably the most difficult issue to overcome when we consider courage. We are tempted to do a calculation, whether mental or actual, to determine if the action that we're contemplating makes sense. We say that we trust God, but the implication of our mental arithmetic is that we're trusting ourselves. God, I trust you, but let me figure out if this thing makes sense for me to do. The problem with this is obvious. True acts of courage always require you to defy the odds. You're never going to find something that requires courage where the odds are actually on your side. If so, it would not be courageous. It never seems that the odds on your side are on your side to take a risk to make a relationship right. What about the courage to fight sin? Isn't it far easier to just continue in it? The courage to share the gospel? Good grief. The odds are stacked against you 10 to 1. What are the odds that that person's going to listen? What are the odds that they're going to be receptive to the gospel truth? What are the odds that the eyes of their heart are going to be enlightened to the glory of God in the face of Christ? Forget about taking a risk to start a new church or take the gospel to a hard place. You will never find the odds on your side on these occasions. Courage is always odd. It is always odd. It it is odd in its manifestation. You just don't see it a lot. And it is odd because it acts in odd circumstances to put yourself on the line to trust God. But here's here's the, the tension point for us. Unless we can train ourselves to do things that don't make sense, we're never going to get the flywheel of courage spinning in our life. We have to train ourselves, even in small ways. I'm sorry. It seems like our relationship's messed up. What, can we make this right? I, 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 did, I, didn't, I didn't work well. I didn't honor you in this moment. Will you forgive me? Unless we can take those little steps of courage and get over ourselves enough to move into spaces where the odds are stacked against us, we're never going to have the courage to do the really hard things that life requires. 
So then the text ends. Verse 15, terror spread through the Philistine camp, the open fields and all the troops. Even the garrison of the raiding parties were terrified. The earth shook and terror spread from God. When Saul's watchmen uh, looked, they saw the panicking troops scattered in every direction. So Saul said to the troops with him, call the roll and determine who has left us. And they called the roll and Jonathan and his armor bearer were gone. Verse 20, Saul and all the troops with him assembled and they marched into battle. All the Philistines were there fighting against each other in great confusion. There were Hebrews in the area who had gone earlier into the camp to join the Philistines. But now even they joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the Israelite men who had been hiding in the hill country of Ephraim saw that the Philistines were fleeing, they also joined Saul and Jonathan in battle. So the Lord saved Israel on that day. Man, if you are Jonathan at this point, don't you have to be going like, dude, what, what is up? Where were you boys earlier? Why are you all coming out of hiding? Notice, everyone who's been hiding, even the deserters, are now switching sides back to fight on the side of the one who is apparently victorious. You boys showing up now? All the people are coaxed out of hiding by the courage of Jonathan. And we'll see next week, this isn't necessarily a good thing. It's going to be a painful turn in the story. But before we take the painful turn, there's a message of hope. The point of this story is verse 23. Once again, the Lord saved Israel on that day. And he did it such that he brought confusion among the people. They're fighting each other. The story is a great, is a continuation of the great deliverance story. The story of the Exodus deliverance. Notice the overtones with this passage from Exodus 14. The Israelites had walked through the sea on dry ground. With the waters like a wall to them on their right and their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the power of the Egyptians. And Israel saw that the Egyptians were dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and they believed him and his servant Moses. The Lord saved Israel in the Exodus deliverance and he continued to save Israel in a random fight in 1 Samuel 14. The language of salvation, friends, is a great point of application for us in the last kind of arg- argument here. We, lean, we see something that's not right. We can control what we can control to make things better. We do it even if the odds are stacked against us. Lastly, in kind of framing this passage, because we really believe the Lord will save us. We really believe that the Lord will, will help us. We believe that he's on our side. The language of salvation is such a brilliant point of application. Those who profess faith in Jesus often use this language to speak of, of their very conversion, don't they? We say, and biblically write, God saved me. Think of what we're saying when we profess that good news, friends. The odds were stacked against us. After all, we were dead in our trespasses and sins and unable to fix our problem. And even worse, because of our sin, we were set off from a holy God, the rightful recipients of his wrath, destined for destruction and separation from him forever. 
But God, in his great grace, saw something that was not right. He saw that his fallen image bearers were no longer rightly reflecting his image and no longer rightly relating to him. And though it was not his action that caused their separation, he controlled what he could control, which is he moved into their sin-darkened world. He tabernacled among them, John will say, in order to make a way possible for rebellious sinners to be saved. It's probably not right to speak of God being courageous because there's a very real sense that God isn't taking risk the way we do. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is one that speaks of him moving into our world, controlling what he, the sovereign God of the universe, can control to make a way possible for those who are dead in their trespasses and sins to be saved. He sent Jesus to live the life that we could not live and die the death that we deserved so that by faith we could experience his forgiveness and love. Here's the way Paul says it in Titus 3. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy. Through the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, he poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs of the hope of eternal life. In other words, if you are here and you are a Christian, you have a 1 Samuel 14, 23 declaration. The Lord has saved you. Which means, if God has saved you from your sin, with God, all things are possible. There is no situation or circumstances of your life that are beyond his reach to save and deliver. God has saved you. And he can keep on saving you in little and small ways when you act with courage that perhaps God will save me again. Let's let that land on us this morning with a moment of reflection before we stand to sing our closing songs. We'll take two minutes of silence for you to process, pray, seek the Lord for what courage looks like for you. At the end of a time of silent reflection, call us to point of prayer and then we'll sing to the Lord.
Father, would you in your kindness make us a courageous people? There's no shortage of things that are not right in our lives and our world. And we ask that by your Spirit's power, you would protect us from paralyzing fear. And you would help us to fight fear with bold courage, faith and trust in you. That unusual courage, not ungodly fear, would mark your people. And we ask that the present work of your Spirit would bring challenge to each of us in the distinctly different ways that that we need to act with courage. Would you call us uh, by the sweet kindness of conviction that comes from your hands uh, to move into things that are not right, do what we can, even if it doesn't seem like it's going to work out, because we trust in you. And as we do that time and time again, would you train our hearts to actually believe that you are capable of saving us in little and small ways every single day? And would that make us people of conviction and courage so that Jesus is known through our lives and in our world? We ask for his sake. Amen. So Walker and the band comes, would you please join me as we stand to sing?